We're reading first this morning from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth, or rather, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19 is our text today. We'll begin our reading in chapter 11, verse 14. Revelation 11, beginning at verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which was in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. And let's pray for God's blessing upon the preaching and hearing of his word. Oh, Lord God, you have given your inspired word to your people. We believe that all scripture has been inspired by you, O God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
We pray that you would use this portion of your word to train us. For we long, O Lord, to be equipped for every good work that you have ordained before the foundation of the world that we should do them. We ask that you would hear us then and that you would grant the Spirit's power both in preaching and in hearing your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The sounding of the seventh trumpet brings us to the conclusion of the third cycle of visions, the third of seven cycles of visions in the book of Revelation. In chapter 8 and verse 13, after the sounding of the first four trumpets, an eagle flying in mid-heaven announces with a loud voice, Woe! Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The first two woes of the fifth and sixth trumpets that follow show that demonic forces are at work in what's happening in the land of Israel. In the first century, as this prophecy is being given, the Jewish war against Rome is ongoing, and demonic forces, satanic forces, are behind the widespread violence and destruction that are upon the land of Israel. John indicates in here in chapter 11 and verse 14, that the third woe is associated with the seventh trumpet and that it's coming quickly. The preceding revelations in the interlude that we've been dealing with in the previous weeks in chapter 10 through 11 and verse 13, have indicated that we're, uh, what it is we're to expect at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the strong angel, Christ himself, declares in chapter 10 and verse 7 that the sounding of the seventh trumpet would serve to announce the finishing of the mystery of God as he preached to his servants the prophets. Recall that the word mystery in the New Testament doesn't mean something mysterious in our, as in our uh, modern sense, uh, as in the hymn that we sang this morning, which spoke of the mystery of the Trinity. Rather, a mystery in the New Testament is something formally concealed and now revealed its revelation. In the New Testament, mystery refers to God's revelation of the gospel. Knowledge that God formerly kept in the shadows of old covenant revelation. But Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 5, and 6, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's what the mystery is about in the New Testament. That's what this word mystery means. It means the fulfillment of the gospel as we find it in New Testament revelation. And that's what this seventh trumpet announces, that the mystery is complete. The mystery is fulfilled. 
Now, that doesn't sound very woeful to me. In fact, it sounds pretty glorious to me that the gospel is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And yet John tells us this trumpet is announcing something that's in connection with the third woe, the third great woe that is coming upon the land and that is coming quickly. In fact, what we read in verses 15 to 17 sounds pretty glorious as well, doesn't it? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Verse 17, we give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Or uh, we could translate this, you have re- you, you reigned uh, in the past tense. That's glorious. It's also quite evident that this woe is coming quickly and that it's associated with judgment as well. If you look at verse 18 here in your text, the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged. That verse ends saying the small and great uh, small and great who who fear your name, uh, and uh, that the Lord would come to destroy those who destroy the land. So there's judgment in association with this seventh trumpet, and that's what the woe is about. And again, John tells us it's coming quickly. The third woe, therefore, does not, as some understand it, usher in the final judgment of the last day at the second coming of Christ, but the final completion of God's mystery that was looked for and sought after by God's prophets. And it announces God's judgment on the Jews of the first century because they had rejected God's Messiah. They had rejected that one prophesied there in Psalm 2. And elsewhere in the Old Covenant scriptures, and they had put him to death on the cross. The seventh trumpet then announces the victorious, never-ending reign of the enthroned Lord Jesus Christ and his coming in judgment upon apostate Israel. That's what this uh, seventh trumpet announces in short. And there are three parts, three components uh, to this seventh trumpet. In the first place, there is the heavenly announcement of Christ's international, everlasting reign. Secondly, the heavenly declaration of triumph. And thirdly, the opening of God's temple in heaven. We'll look first here in verse 15 at the heavenly announcement of God's international, everlasting reign. The loud voices in heaven that announce the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, here in verse 15, are not identified. We don't know what loud voices are, they are. Perhaps they're the whole host of heaven. Perhaps as this uh, third cycle of visions 
comes to its conclusion, uh, comes to its uh, apex in uh, the, the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Perhaps those voices include the whole host of angels in heaven and uh, the whole host of God's church triumphant in heaven with loud voices making this proclamation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Whatever the case, we know that this is the announcement as John sees it, as he as, as uh, this vision is, is given to him here in, in Revelation. And what this means then, as we've understood it in terms of chapter 10 and verse 7, in terms of what Christ, the strong angel, has said, uh, it means that at this point in history, uh, the mystery is fulfilled and God's plan is made apparent. And as Paul has has, uh, explained it clearly, uh, both in Ephesians 3, verses 5 to 6, and in other portions of of Scripture, that means that Jews and Gentiles are now on equal footing in the covenant. The judgment of apostate Israel and the temple revealed that God had created a new nation, a new temple, as Jesus had prophesied to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 21, verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Later, Jesus told his disciples what would be the effect of the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember in the, the Mount of uh, the, the, the Olivet Discourse, uh, Matthew 24, 30, at that time will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The judgment upon Jerusalem was a sign that the Son of Man was reigning in heaven. The phrase in heaven, in that expression, refers to the the locality of the Son of Man, not the locality of the sign. The Son of Man is in heaven. And that is a sign that he is reigning in heaven. The sign was to to appear in the heavens, but the destruction of Jerusalem on earth was to indicate the rule of the Son of Man in heaven. So this heavenly proclamation, and it's interesting that everything in this seventh trumpet is is bound up in, in, uh, in the heavenly places, bound up in heaven. That heavenly proclamation of verse 15 declares that the kingdom of God becomes universalized. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In the destruction of Jerusalem and in the destruction of the temple, there's a final disassociation of Christianity from Judaism. And that means that Christianity, that the true religion of Israel is now a worldwide religion. The worldwide religion of which you and I are now a part The kingdom of Christ now begins to uh, the process of encompassing all the nations of the world. 
This became clear with the fall of Jerusalem. The sign that Christ had indeed ascended to his heavenly throne and was ruling the nations, pouring out his wrath and tribulation upon his enemies at the request of his praying church. This is what's symbolized in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, when the strong angel, Christ himself, comes down out of heaven with the the little scroll in his hand, his feet planted on the sea and, and on the land. That he's reigning. This was is what Christ swore to. Uh, what he raised his right hand to and swore as uh, the faithful witness in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, saying that when uh, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, there will be delay no longer. This is what the little scroll of chapter 10 was all about. As John was recommissioned to bear witness to this reality of the finishing of the mystery of God. To this reality that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his eternal reign, the two witnesses of chapter 11 symbolizing Moses and Elijah, Elijah, and more broadly, all of the prophets, and even more broadly and ultimately, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, bear witness to that because the Spirit of Christ has been poured out upon the church, poured out upon the witness of the gospel, The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is unstoppable. The gospel train is in motion. And nothing can stop this train. That's what the seventh trumpet is announcing as we come to the conclusion of this third cycle of visions in Revelation. So what's on God's heart? That's what we need to be asking ourselves as Christians, as believers, because what's on God's heart should be on our hearts. What is on God's heart? Well, the world's on God's heart. We know that from that well-familiar verse in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The nations are on God's heart. You can't read the Old Testament without understanding that the nations are on God's heart. He made Abraham the father of many nations. He promised that Abraham's descendants would be multiplied, that they would spread throughout all the earth. You can't read the Psalms without understanding that the nations are on God's heart. What's on the heart of Christ? His worldwide kingdom. And that means... that this worldwide kingdom must be on our hearts if we're to be in concert with what's on God's heart and what's on Christ's heart. It's therefore central to the church's ministry to go and make disciples of all nations. In obedience to Christ's commands, his worldwide kingdom is central to our prayer. Christ made this quite clear, didn't he, when he put 
God's kingdom front and center in the petitions of the Lord's prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The nations of the earth, the worldwide reign of the earth is to be on my heart and to be on your heart as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the great themes of of the book of Acts as we... uh, as I expounded that some, some time ago now. And I said at that time that if you're not praying for the nations, you're not praying in accordance with God's will. And I will say that again, and I'll underscore it. If you are not praying for the nations, you're not praying according to God's will. If you don't have the nations on your heart, then you don't have on your heart what God and his Christ have on theirs. The heavenly announcement of Christ's international, everlasting reign. Secondly, in verses 16 to 18, we have uh, the heavenly declaration of triumph. As this heavenly uh, vision proceeds, the 24 elders, remember what these uh, elders symbolize, uh, God's redeemed of both covenants, both old and new, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, uh, the, the, the redeemed of, of of both covenants, offering thanksgiving and and praise to God for his triumphant reign. I think it symbolizes uh, uh, God's elect of all all time, but I think in particular it's uh, because of this announcement is coming out of heaven. I think it refers especially to the, the church triumphant in heaven who are praising God, giving him thanks for his triumphant reign. From their position in heaven before the throne, they have a, they have a certain vantage point from that uh, heavenly throne. They fall upon their faces in adoration of God and His Christ, whose reign shall not be interrupted. Our text tells us it's quite appropriate that these enthroned Uh, representatives of the Old and New Testament church should utter forth his praise and thanksgiving in verses 17 and 18. Because from that exalted position, they see, as it were, the end from the beginning. Like the voices of verse 15, then, they, they contemplate Christ's kingdom has fully come. We give thanks to you, O Lord God, Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken great power and have begun to reign. I contemplated whether I should address a technicality here in the text, and I decided that I will because some of your translations differ uh, than uh, the New American Standard from which I'm reading and, and preaching. Because of a textual variant in verse 17, the Greek manuscripts have different readings, uh, and they account for the differences in our prominent translations in English. Some of your translations read, We give thanks to you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, or who are and who were. 
I don't like that particular reading. It happens to be the one I'm reading, but nevertheless, uh, who is and who was, I think is a better uh, reading. And some of them read who is and who was and who is to come, which compares, if you've been paying attention in Revelation, to chapter 1 and verse 8 and chapter 4 and verse 8 to these uh, to the declaration of, uh, uh, of uh, a deity who is and who was and uh, who is to come. So the question then becomes, what's the original reading? Because there is a variation in uh, the, the Greek manuscripts. And while we can't be absolutely certain... Not only is the omission of who is to come better attested in the Greek manuscripts, but it better fits the vision of the seven trumpets. And I, 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 I say that I think it was omitted for a reason here, even though it was included in chapter 1 and verse 8 and chapter 4. And verse 8, from the elders' point of view, the kingdom has already come. And so they say, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign, or simply, you have reigned, depending on how uh, we translate verse 17. The seventh trumpet contemplates Christ's reign from the vantage point of his ascension and exaltation to heaven. Having come into his power and uh, the assumption of his rightful rule and his coming quickly to judge, it assumes that he has come in his power. He's come into his power, and that's why I think uh, this reading uh, while we can't be absolutely certain because of variation in the Greek manuscripts, that's what I think it ought to read. He's assumed his rightful rule. He's coming quickly to judge. Jesus, remember, assured the church at Philadelphia uh, that in a time of need, Chapter 3 and verse 11, he would come quickly. He told the church at Pergamum that unless the faithless repented, he would come quickly to make war against them. Chapter 2 and verse 16, among his closing words in the book of Revelation are the the promise that either in, in time of need or judgment, he would come quickly. The third woe is coming quickly. Chapter 11 Verse 14, judgment upon apostate Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem. And the theme of judgment then continues, as we've pointed out here in verse 18. The nations were enraged. Your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged. This is an illusion uh, you may have caught from Psalm 2, from which we read this morning, as, as now having been fulfilled, all the jealousy and ambitious self-seeking of the Jews, all the threatenings and oppressions and persecutions, all the rebellion and sedition of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the nations and the people of Israel were overruled to the glory of God and the accomplishment of his purposes. The seventh trumpet announces that the time had come for the dead to be judged or vindicated. We could translate this. The elders a declaration goes on in, in here in verse 18. A judgment upon Israel meant that the, the time had come to avenge 
the dead martyrs who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, and for avenging the faithful witnesses of those whose dead bodies were exposed in that great city, that is Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified, chapter 11, verses 7 to 8. So the little while longer mentioned in chapter 6 and 11 with regard to the martyrs is now finished. The martyrs are now going to be avenged in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the destruction of apostate Israel. The time had come to reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and great and those who destroy. I think not the earth here is the way we ought to translate this, but who destroy the land, uh, meaning the land of Israel, uh, that is the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the land of Judah, who were guilty of neglecting the vineyard of the Lord, which had been entrusted to them. Jesus warned the chief priests and the elders of Israel that uh, the Lord of the vineyard would bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out their vineyard to, another, to other vine growers and will pay him the proceeds at proper seasons. Matthew 21, verse 41. When judgment has been carried out then on unbelieving Israel in response to the martyr's cries for vengeance, chapter 6 and verse 10, then the mystery is finished. With the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the mystery will be finished, will be fulfilled. That brings us then to our third point in verse 19, the opening of God's temple in heaven. Verse 19, the theological significance of Israel's downfall is summed up for us here. It meant that the temple of God was opened in heaven, we're told uh, by John here as he describes this vision in verse 19. With the fall of Jerusalem, the earthly temple would be gone. And only the true temple would remain. Remember, we saw in the measuring of the temple, in chapter 1, uh, rather chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and not only, John was told not only to measure the architecture of the temple, not only the furniture of the temple, but those who were worshiping in the temple. And the temple as is conceived here in uh, Revelation, is thereby revealed to be uh, those who worship in the temple, thereby revealed to be the church of God itself, the church of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in the vision of this seventh, uh, seventh trumpet, in chapter, here in chapter 11, verse 19, the temple of God which is in heaven, was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. Remember uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the significance of uh, the Ark of the Covenant. It was, a, it was a, a symbol of God's presence among his people. It was located in the Holy of Holies. And God is said to be enthroned above the cherubim. Numerous places uh, in uh, the Old Testament scriptures, so that we can't mistake the main import, import the, the main significance of, of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the, the essence of the covenant is God's taking for himself a people to be their God 
and to dwell in their midst. And in the tabernacle and in the temple, God dwells, he symbolizes his indwelling among the people of God in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. The temple of God, which is in heaven, is opened. His Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. Remember, too, that only the high priest was allowed into that section of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and only once a year, and then only with blood for atoning. And remember as well that it was called, it was called uh, the Ark of the Testament because the two tablets that contain those words that we read this morning in the reading of the law, inscribed upon those two tablets, they were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And so there's a sense in which approach to God and God's Word itself, although in the Law of Moses, we have the Law of God revealed. But in a sense, there's a sense in which God's people of old are, are, are kept at arm's length from God and from his testimony. But now, here in verse 19, the temple of God in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant appears. Which means that God has come to dwell with his people. Which is a remarkable thing, dear Christians. That God has come to dwell with us in our Emmanuel. God with us in our Lord Jesus Christ who became flesh and dwelt among us, who became God among us. It's a wondrous, wondrous, symbolic representation then of God's eternal dwelling with his people and the fact that all God's people now have access to the throne. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies where God was enthroned above the cherubim. But now because God with us has come, because Emmanuel has come, we can come into the Holy of Holies. We can present our petitions before the Lord. We can commune with Him as the saints before us could not. What a wondrous thing this is. And we have confidence to do so. Hebrews 9, uh, 10, 19 assures us, by the blood of Jesus. And the revelation of this wondrous truth is the reason that all of the phenomena uh, that had been associated with the glory cloud. Remember when God came down in a cloud and appeared to Israel in the old covenant. He came down in a cloud uh, and uh, as, a, as a pillar of cloud upon the tabernacle of old, which represented his, his, uh, his glory and uh, his presence. He came down in uh, the glory cloud. And all of these phenomena here that, that we see in verse 19, flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm, all of these phenomena were associated with that 
glory cloud. In the church of Jesus Christ, the door of heaven itself is opened up to us. We who are privileged to live post a revelation of the Lord Jesus, we are, who are privileged to live during this time after the mystery has been fulfilled, And our sanctification is by means of the church. Through its ministry, its sacraments, every Lord's Day then, whether we recognize it or not, and so often we don't, as we stumble out of our beds and in through the church doors, we don't realize the great privilege that we have. But every Lord's Day, we are ascending into heaven to meet with our God. And our God in worship promises to come and dwell in our midst. The seventh trumpet announces the victorious never-ending reign of the enthroned Lord Jesus Christ. His worldwide kingdom is at the center of the ministry of the church. It's to be at the center of our prayers. And we can minister and we can pray with confidence because the seventh trumpet announces that no power satanic or otherwise can stop the expansion of the glorious reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth that's why we can be certain that the time will come when communism will fall in China in North Korea, in Cuba, and other nations, just as the Berlin Wall came down and the USSR fell apart. The seventh trumpet has sounded, and the evil systems that oppose the reigning Christ and his gospel that seek to stop the expansion of the gospel will eventually fall. That will be the case with Islam, which is spreading so rampantly in our time, and which seems so powerful with all its financial resources and its intense persecution of Christians and attempts to stop the progress of the gospel. You read, uh, you, you look at lists of the most persecuted nations in the world, and at the top of those lists are the Islamic nations. But Islam must go down because the seventh trumpet has sounded, announcing the glorious reign of Christ. He will be victorious over all his enemies. And so it will be with secular humanism or practical atheism. It's pervasive in America. It's pervasive in the Western world. It's rejected the Christian faith. It seeks to exclude every influence of Christianity from the public forum, the public square. For all of its strength, Every form of atheism will be broken apart. They will come down too because the seventh trumpet has sounded, announcing that Jesus is victorious. The working out of that is, of course, on 
uh, that, that this final victory is on God's timetable. It's not on ours. It's on his calendar, calendar not on our, our calendar. But the victory is sure. And that should be a great encouragement to us as we seek to have what's on God's heart, on our heart, and as we seek to pray for the nations, because it can be quite discouraging when we look around the world and see the opposition the gospel faces in every corner, in every quarter. It ought to give us confidence. It ought to give us certainty in the victory of Christ. And in the strength of that surety, then, we go and make disciples of all nations. And we pray confidently, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, and O Lord Christ, the one who reigns forever and ever, we give thanks to you and we praise you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have reigned. We bless your name, O Lord, that we live on the right side of that reign, that we who proclaim Christ and confess Christ, who love Christ, who receive Christ, that we are on the right side of that reign and that ours will be a great Our indwelling with, with you, O Lord, eternally will be, be one of great joy and peace and, and bliss forever. We ask, O Lord, that you would, as we read your word, as we hear it preached, that you would put on our hearts what's on your heart. We pray that we might pray in conformity to your will as you have taught us to pray, O Lord Christ. We ask indeed that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.